All right, let's learn. Let's learn. Wednesday afternoon, always a great time to learn. Parsis Mishpatz, and we are holding on page 416. Okay, where we're up to, what we're going to do is a little unusual today. What I normally like to do is, uh, for those of you who are regulars here, is learn a series of psukim, five, six to ten psukim, to really get a sense of a, a small section. Um, today, we're going to really learn almost one Pusik. It's really what's going to happen, because this one Pusik has so many lessons that come out of it that we're sort of going to use it as a springboard. But just to fulfill our normal course of action, we will learn a bunch. We're going to go back a little bit to last week's, uh, last week's uh, Parsha for that. Uh, so let's jump right in with the opening of our Parsha. We have a lot to talk about. Eila HaMishpatim, we have a, a five-word Pusik that is going to keep us busy the whole time. Ve'ele ha-mishpatim, our parsha begins, These are the laws, asher tasim lifnehem, that you shall place before them. Okay, very simple phrase. We have a lot to discuss. So number one, we have uh, Moshe being told by Hashem, here are the laws. Here are the mishpatim. The word mishpatim, there are many different words the Torah uses for law. Sometimes we get chukim. We have mishpatim. Um, there are various descriptions of mitzvos that we have in which the Torah describes. Mishpatim generally are a reference to laws that we would consider logical, meaning things that we can understand, they're rational, as opposed to, for example, the laws of shotness. Like, why can't I mix wool and linen? There's, there's not a reasonable, rational thing. Evidence by the fact that there's probably not another nation in the history of the planet that ever had such a prohibition from wearing a mixture of wool and linen. Because where would anyone come up with that from? So those are what we call a chok. That's a divine law that we don't necessarily have. We might come up with reasons, we can come up with explanations, what wool represents and what linen represents and why it's not a good... But all of that is after the fact that we've been given the law, we're going to try to find meaning a reason, something from it. But is it reasonable or rational from the perspective that we on our own would have come up with it? Not at all. So there are many laws like that in the Torah. Para Aduma, the law of the red cow, of course, is a famous one. But there are many like that. Even the laws of tzitzis. Who, who would have come up with the idea that if you have a four-cornered garment, you should put strings on them? Like, why? What does that do? So again, we come up with reasons. The Torah itself says, Lamantizkeru, it's going to be a sign, it's going to be a memory of all of them. It's very nice. But my point is the word mishpatim generally refers to laws that are monetary in, na- in nature, laws between man and fellow man, and often that have a reasonable, rational approach as to, yeah, this is how we do it. And many other law systems will have similar type of laws, not maybe exactly the same, but the idea of if you damage someone's property, you are responsible to pay, which is what many of the laws of our part should discuss, it's pretty logical. Yeah, you damage someone's part. Exactly how you pay and what are the circumstances. So the Torah has its own set and maybe other systems have a little bit different. But we have the divine system. But that's the opening word. Eila mishpatim. Asher tasim lifnehem that you, Moshe, need to place before them. And then the Torah, this entire parsha is going to go through a, a long list of laws. A long list of if you have a cow and your cow damages this person's cow or damages this person's property, if you set fire, if you did this, if you did that, all sorts of laws of damages, of course, begins with the Evid Ivri, the Jewish bondsman. Um, and if you flip through the, um, the Parsha, you'll see all the various different animals damaging parsh- uh, property, one who steals livestock, a thief, um, shomrim, people who watch things, if I give somebody to watch it for me, all the law, Bava Kama, Bava Metziah, all those tractates are all based on 
this parsha. Okay, and we get into the laws. Now, this is very significant. We're not going to get into those details today. But that, this is significant as we shift from the stories of Sefer Bracious, all the great stories of, of Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and their children, Yosef. These are amazing, dramatic stories. And the beginning of Sefer Shmos as well, in which we're in Mitzrayim and servitude and the whole story of Pesach and the ten plagues and the leaving and Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and the splitting of the sea, the giving of the Torah. These are amazing stories. And now we get into Ve'ela Mishpatim. Now we got a lot of law. One might call it dry, not as exciting. There are no stories. It's just a, a lot of laws. It's a lot. We're going to get back to stories, but right now... So just to express that, I remember when I moved, I've always shared this, like one of my favorite stories. When I moved to Atlanta, this is going back now a long time already, so um, one of the first things you need to do is take your car to get uh, inspected, to get your new license plate, whatever the process is. So like literally my first week in Atlanta, I'm in a Southern mechanic. Now this is a new experience. If you have never had the blessing of being in not just a mechanic, but in a Southern mechanic shop. So it's like, a, it's, it's a different world. So here I am first day, first week living in Atlanta and um, waiting for the car to be tested, whatever they were doing to give me whatever paperwork I needed to register the car. And while I'm sitting in the waiting room, a uh, non-Jewish guy moses on up to me and says, you a rabbi. So now I was still at the age where this was exciting. I was like, yes, this is going to be great. This is going to be a fun conversation. So he says, I love the Bible, he says to me. So I said, that's great. That's really great. That's so nice. See, he said, I read the Bible every night. He says to me, that's what? That's really, that's so good. So good. This is like this, you know, there's, they call it the Bible Belt for a reason. They are religious people down there in the South. So uh, he says, I have to tell you something, Rabbi. I read that Bible religiously. I read it all the time. I love the stories. I'm familiar with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I read through. And every time what happens is I read through the stories and then I get right around to Exodus chapter 21, and then I like, I grind to a halt. I grind to a halt, he says to me. And then I go back to the beginning, and I love the Bible. And I remember thinking, like, that is awesome, because Exodus 21 is what we just started, Ve'ele HaMishpatim. We, there's this dramatic shift from the stories and Harsinai, and the Exodus, and then you get into my cow and your cow. And you know, it's, it's just not as interesting if you're not into that kind of thing. So this guy literally said that. Like, I just grind to a halt, Rabbi, and I start over. And I owe every parsha to Mishpatim. You'll hear this from me, God willing, many times, because I, I can't, like, I, I feel like I share that story every year, parsha to Mishpatim, because, but this is really where it's at. This is where the stories are nice, but how do we live our life? How do we behave between man and fellow man? What are our responsibilities? What are our uh, obligations in terms of living correctly, not just in the esoteric and, and big stories of, you know, I have a neighbor. How do I have to relate to my neighbor? What are my responsibilities to be correct? When do I need to pay? So this is really the bread and butter as critical and maybe not as exciting as some of the other stories, but, um, but that's how it begins. Okay, so let's... Let's break down this puzzle because there's a lot to say. Rashi tells us many things, 
and we'll uh, we'll work it through. The first thing that Rashi tells us in this nehem. Here are the ordinances, as Art Scroll likes to translate, that you shall place before them. So the first thing you'll notice is the very first letter of this Pasuk is a Vav. A Vav is known as the Chibur, that which connects to that which came before it. So Rashi tells us if there would not be a Vav, it's just Eila, a new word, it's as if it's a break from whatever came before. Now we're starting something new. Ve'ele is coming out of what we just spoke about, and now we're continuing. Well, what was the main centerpiece of last week's Parsha? This was in the beginning, but the centerpiece, as we spoke about in our shir last week, is, of course, the Aseris Adibros, that which takes place on Harsinai, Hashem descending Himself onto the mountain. It shuddered the lightning, the thunder, all of that which we spoke about. And Hashem gives us the Aseris Adibros. So Rashi comments, again, based on Chazal, from the Ve'ele, as we shift from stories to laws, and specifically from the Aseris Adibros of last week's Parsha, the greatest of the stories. So Rashi comments, Maharishonim Misinai, just like what are we connecting this vav? Just like last week's parsha, the Aseris Adibras were from Arsinai, we're with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and Hashem's presence coming down. Af elu misinai. So to these, these laws, the mundane, my cow and your cow and my pit and you borrowed this from me and it got lost or it got stolen, who pays, who's responsible? That's also all from Sinai. And many commentators speak about this, that the, the Rashi sees fit, or the Torah sees fit, to put to con- to together that which happened from last week's Parsha Har Sinai with our mundane laws, they're all from Sinai. Maral, when he speaks about this, touches on the idea, which is really a, uh, a big idea that we always, it's an interesting thing, we probably take it for granted already. But if any of you were in shul last week, anybody notice what happened when we got to the Aliyah of the Aseris Hadibros? Everybody stood. Excellent. That is a big discussion in in halacha, in in Jewish law, if that should happen or not. I would say it's pretty ubiquitous um, that that's what happens in shuls. But it's a big discussion. Why is it a big discussion? What would be the argument not to stand for the Aseris Adibros? It's just fun to the Torah. It's just an aliyah. We're, We're laning an aliyah that's just like anything else. Why should we make a bigger deal? Oh, this you need to stand for, but not, but not everything else. If you stand for Kriya Sator, as people do, then you should stand for everything. And if you don't stand, then why should you stand for this? On the other hand, on the other hand, there's such a thing called the Aseris Hadivros. There's such a thing called the Luchos that Moshe came down with, which only had ten and not Everything. Moshe received everything on Harsinai, but what's actually written on the Luchos are the Aseris Adibros. When, Moshe, when Hashem came down on last week's parasha amidst the thunder and the lightning, and he says the Aseris Adibros. So there's this balance between, on the one hand, there's something about these ten that Hashem wanted to pull out and identify and say, this is something significant. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, right? I am Hashem, your God, is significant. Not to have any other gods. Honor your parents. Keep Shabbos. Don't kill. Don't steal. Adultery. Um, being a false witness. There's something about these. On the other hand, it's also just a part of 
Toad. If you remember our shir from last week, we spoke about how did Hashem give the Aseris Adibros, the ten? The Dibur Echad we spoke about. And the memory to give a whole shir last week. Why is it that Hashem saw it fit to give the Aseris Adibros in one utterance, in one single moment? Because you can't, you can't really divide or separate or pull out. It's all... All of Torah is one and has to be addressed as one. So we have this duality of, on the one hand, certain things are, are intrinsically more significant. If someone were to ask you, is Shabbos more important than Shatniz? If I could only keep one, which one should I do? Shabbos or Shatniz? We would say Shabbos is more important. How, how do we know that? So we know it from the punishment, and we know because Shabbos is in the Aseris Adibros, and Shatnas didn't make it in. It didn't make it in in the top ten. Don't wear what? It's, it's a mitzvah. You're not allowed to. You need to have your clothing checked to make sure that you don't violate it. But we're, there's such a thing called kalos and chamuros, lighter mitzvos and heavier ones. How do we know that there's such a thing like that? Because the mission in Perkiavo says... You should always be heavy zahir. You should be as careful with the kalos kivachamurs. Be as careful with the light ones as you are with the heavy ones. There are, there, we recognize there's such a thing of heavier and lighter. And the Mishnah says, be very careful. Don't tread on the light ones. Be as careful with, because you don't know the reward. We know that it's significant, but maybe up in Shemayim, there's more reward for Shabbos than there is for Shabbos. I don't know. All I know is that down here, Shabbos is given more attention and significance in the Torah because Shabbos is spoken about many times. I can't remember if it's like 30 or 40 different references the Torah makes to Shabbos, and Shabbos gets its pasuk of don't wear Shabbos. So we know that it's more significant, but so we have this balance. On the one hand, there's such a thing called the Aseris HaDibros, in which Hashem himself saw it fit to designate ten. On the other hand, these ten are just a part of Torah, like everything else, and you can't pull out. It's all a single unified unit called Torah. And so we have this balance. And so the the discussion about should we stand for the Aseris HaDibros comes from, like, okay, there's such a thing, but maybe we shouldn't highlight that to the degree of only standing for this, because it might give somebody the impression that only that came from Harsinai. Only the Aseris HaDibros were given by Hashem, and everything else, maybe Moshe made it, who knows? So in order no one think that, so that's where the discussion is, maybe we shouldn't highlight it by saying, again, most shuls I've been in, they, they stand. They give a little clop on the beam and everybody stands, and part of that is because we, we do want to highlight this. We want this everybody to know how significant it is. So anyway, Rashi notes, as we now get into the nitty-gritty details of these laws, what's the first letter that introduces the paragraph? Above. To say what Rashi says? In the same way that what you just finished came from Sinai, and you, you the people, stood at the foot of our Sinai behind the fence. You heard Hashem's voice beaming, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. When Moshe comes and teaches us the rest... These are also from Sinai. You shouldn't think that only that came from Sinai. Everything did, but it took Moshe a long time to teach it to us. So he didn't teach everything while we were still at Har Sinai over the 40 years. We learned all the mitzvahs, and eventually um, they're taught to us, but they all came from Sinai, the same source as the Aseris Adibis, which we did here. So the very first letter that brings us into the next series of laws is Vav, which Rashi right away notes, is to connect it to that which we had seen previously. 
Then Rashi says, then Rashi says, why there's one important series of laws in between the Aseris Hadibros and our Parsha of Mishpatim. If you flip back here, we're going we're to cover a couple of Sukkim quickly. If you flip back, the very last, if you flip back to 412, for example, just to show you where, uh, where we are. So 412, on the very top of the page on 412, is the end of the Aseris Hadibros. You see that, uh, right? Um, is there on the top of the page. Then the next little paragraph um, from verse Tesvav, verse 15 through 1819 is uh, what happens after the Aserah Sadibras. The people were scared. They ran away. They said to Moshe, we can't handle it. We want you to talk to us. And, um, and that, that's what happens there. And then Hashem gives Moshe a final series of instructions in the last paragraph before we finish the Parsha. And that has to do, if you see, uh, let's do the last Let's flip to page 414. Let's learn the last three verses together. He tells them not to have any idolatrous uh, figures. And then he goes into verse 21. Pasuk Chaf Aleph. Mizbach Adama Ta'asali. You shall make for me a Mizbach, an altar of earth. Meaning it should be filled with actual earth. And on that you're going to bring your korbanah. So all of your sacrifices will be on that Mizbach. And wherever you mention my name, I will bless you. And then we have two other halachas that conclude the parsha. Chaf Beis, verse 22. In Mizbach Avanim Ta'aseli, Lo Sivne Eshen Gozis. But if you're going to make it out of stone, then it cannot be hewn out of any metal instrument. cannot be touched. The stones cannot be cut or carved or hewn from metal. If you will raise your sword, you will desecrate it. So that's a whole series of laws which we're not going to get into now, but you can have no metal can ever come into contact with the stones of the Mizbeach. When they built the Mizbeach in the Mishkan and in the Beis HaMikdash itself, it had to be some, there was a whole discussion, how they get the stones for if you couldn't use a metal implement to, or instrument to, to get it out. They had a whole process, they had a special worm that would, would have secretions which would allow them to break the stones, but you could not have metal come into contact. Rashi makes the comment, metal, which is used for uh, swords or knives, which are implements which shorten a person's life. So any implement that's used to shorten a person's life could therefore not be used to create the stones of a Mizbeach, which are a lengthening of one's life through the korbanos, through the atonement, through the closeness. So therefore, you couldn't have the two together. That's another halacha. Again, not for the details now. We just want to mention this again to our next point. And then lastly, the very last pasuk in last week's parashah, you may not have steps on the altar, but only a ramp. If you had steps, Rashi explains, so when a Kohen were to walk up steps, so by definition, if you could picture the way the person would walk, a Kohen had a robe, when he would pick up his leg for, on, to walk up the step, it would, so to speak, expose himself to the stones of the altar as he was walking up. And that was inappropriate, but if he had a ramp, then he can take small, appropriate steps in his robe that would not, so to speak, expose himself. Two comments. Number one, Rashi notes, he wasn't really exposing himself. He wasn't like wearing a, uh, what do they call those, kilts? From, uh, right? the, they had uh, britches underneath the robe, so he certainly was covered, but it looks like he was exposing himself in an inner part. And, and so they were, and then Rashi makes them, uh, I don't want to say the more part, but Rashi makes the, the, the lesson in that is, if to a stone, which has no feelings, and is not a person, but we're sensitive not to do something that would be degrading to the stone, 
Rashi comments, why, why is that the lesson of the base of the How much more so a human being who does have feelings, who is aware if he's being degraded, if he's being uh, spoken to or addressed or treated in an inappropriate way, if the stones of the Mizbech were sensitive that we shouldn't in any way uh, have an affront to their honor, so to speak, how much more so to our fellow human being who does notice, who does feel and is offended, uh, we learn from here how much more so. Okay, all of that are great uh, um, drushing material, but the bottom line is, how did our Parsha end, not just with the Aserah Sedim, but then we had three laws of the Mizbeach. It should be out of earth, or earth materials, no metal, and you can't have uh, steps, you have to have a ramp. So if you literally want to go from one to the next, what leads into the Mishpatim, the laws of, between man and man, what do we immediately come out of? The laws of the Mizbeach. Right out of the laws of the Mizbeach, we go into the laws of our parsha, Mishpatim, of between man and fellow man. So Rashi notes that as well. Why are they next to each other? In this, or he says, in the same way that the two are next to each other, when you actually construct the Beis HaMikdash, you also must put them next to each other. Meaning, right next to the Mizbeach, what needs to be in the very next room? The Sanhedrin. The court, the high court of 71 judges that make sure that all these laws are being kept has to be right next to the Mizbech. Because just like in the Psukim, what are the, what's next to each other? The laws of the Mizbech are right next to Ela Mishpatim, the laws of, of our Parsha. So the two laws are side by side, the laws of the Mizbech with the laws of monetary law. So too, Rashi says, in physical proximity in the Beis HaMikdash, the Sanhedrin, which adjudicates all of these laws, has to be right next to the Mizbeach. So when you'd walk into the Mizbeach, or into the Beis HaMikdash, the layout of the actual Beis HaMikdash is you'd have the Mizbeach and you'd have the Sanhedrin. So unlike, for example, today in Israel, where does the Knesset sit? Right? It's on some hilltop in Yerushalayim, but it's not in the complex of the Beis HaMikdash. Right? It's not in the old city of Yerushalayim. So if you want to go to the Knesset, the modern day, modern, so it's somewhere else. It's in Yerushalayim, but it's, it's not in the Beis HaMikdash. Um, that's where it is. So when the, when the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt, and when it, when it used to stand, none of the actual seats of the Sanhedrin, the actual 71-member court, sat in the Beis HaMikdash just right next to the Mizbeach, like, like in the Pesuk. Now, a comment that the Maharal makes, he says, look, okay, he says, really, that's cute. Like, the Pesukim put the two together. You have the Mizbeach and you have the laws. So, therefore, I need to build the Mizbeach and put it next to the body that adjudicates it. Like, just because the Pesukim are next to each other, what's the connection between having the Sanhedrin right there that they have to sit, the high court in the Beis HaMikdash? Now, on a simple level, before we even get to his answer, it's a beautiful lesson that that's where the seat of the Beis HaMikdash, it, that the seat of the Sanhedrin should be in the Beis HaMikdash, that the reverence and the awe that one has when walking into the Beis HaMikdash, that that's where the high court should also sit. When you had an issue that needed to be addressed, that that's where you should go to the Beis HaMikdash is a nice thing. But the Merala adds to that. He says a beautiful thing. He says the function of both the Mizbeach and of the Sanhedrin is exactly the same. The Mizbeach and the Sanhedrin do the same thing, and that is to bring peace to the world. Listen to what he explains. This is an amazing thing. How does the Mizbeach bring peace? Bring peace? Because the Mizbeach is where we offer our 
Karbanos, our sacrifices, our offerings. And the root of the word Karban, of course, comes from the word Karov, to be close. And the whole idea of bringing a Karban, which again, we don't relate to because we don't understand, we don't have anything to, to attach that to, but the idea of bringing a Karban, a Jew would bring a Karban, we can't, again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around bringing an ox or a sheep into the base of Mikdash and somehow feeling a spiritual experience, but that's the way that it went. You did. And it was to bring one close. Whether you were bringing a Karban Chatas, a sin offering, which means that you did something wrong and this was your apology, Today with our spouses, we buy flowers or a Hallmark <laughs> card, right? You give something to say, a piece of jewelry, depending how bad it was, something as an offering of, I messed up, I want to fix it, I want to be, I want to get a relationship back to where it was. So between a man, a woman, and Hashem, that would be through a carbon. I did something wrong, and I wanted to, be, I want to fix it. Or whether or not the offering was a Thanksgiving offering, just out of thanks, my life is amazing, I've had beautiful things, I want to... I want to give thanks, or whether it was a carbon shlomim that a little bit went to the Kohen, went to yourself, whatever it was. The carbon, the Mizbeach was the place in which peace was increased between the Jewish people and Avinu Shabbat our Father in Heaven. What's the function of the Sanhedrin? So the function of the Sanhedrin is to bring peace. An amazing thing, between man and man. How does Sanhedrin bring peace between man and man? Because before you go to Sanhedrin, so two people are having a fight. You were in my property, you damaged my house, you damaged my car, your animal ate up my flower garden, you owe me money. The other person says, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't this, it wasn't that, I don't know you, I owe you this, I owe you that. So they're fighting. They, 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 you know, uh, they, you, they go to court, and when they get up sock, they get the final result from the court, ah, now there's peace between people. Supposedly. <laughs> okay, good, I was waiting for that. So now you're thinking, you're like, what? That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works because I know you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. I know many people who are angrier when they come out of court than when they went in. So how can you tell me that the Sanhedrin is the seat of peace? Because when you walk out, everybody's in love with each other because the Sanhedrin gave a ruling. That's not the way it works. Listen to this. This is unbelievable. Why is it? Why is it that all the people that you know that come out of court are angrier than when they went in? So there are a couple of reasons. Number one, because the system of law that, let's say a secular, let's start with a secular court. The system of law in a secular court, it, which our parsha has a whole discussion about whether or not a Jew is allowed to go to a secular court, you're supposed to go to a basin, but let's just talk about a secular court for a minute. In a secular court, so you go with a dispute, you have the same dispute with your friend, you think that his animal ate your flower bed or he damaged your house or your car, the tree fell, it's his fault, it's your fault, whatever the case may be. So who made up the law that's now deciding whether or not he owes you the money or not? The people. The people. The people made up the law, whether I was the founding fathers 200 years ago, whether or not it was some other group of lawyers or it was voted on by a group of people, whatever it may be, a group of people, human beings, came up with this particular law. This law applies in this city, but not in that city. This state, but not in that state. In this country, it's a series of law. Here we hold it, and here we don't. And your lawyer was better than my lawyer, and he figured out how to manipulate the case to like this or like that. And this judge had to then figure out and wade through all of the evidence and the lawyers, and he saw it like this or she saw it like that. So when you walk out of court and you're on the losing side, do you feel that by definition, I got a ruling. So since I got a ruling, I'm not owed the money, or I do owe the money. Not at all, because you're convinced, I'm right, 
I either don't owe this money or I should be getting the money. And some system that I have to live in said no. And maybe the judge applied the law correctly. But why is that the law? If I lived in a different state, the law would be different. If I lived in a different country, the law would be different. So I'm not happy. I'm not happy. Can you imagine going into the court of Moshe Rabbeinu? Having the same dispute, the tree fell, the animal, this, that, and the other. I owe you, I don't owe the money. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, you owe the money? Are you, you're going to argue that he's not right? You're going to argue that that's not the law. You're going to argue that oh, I have a better basin to go to. I have a better system. Hashem taught Moshe, this is the law. Second point, and we'll put this together. The attitude of a Jew going to court should be one of, I just want to do the right thing. It's not that I'm here to win. I'm here to do the right thing. I hope I win. I'd like to win. I want to do right. And if I owe the money, then I want to pay. I don't want to walk around owing somebody money now. I want to do right. I just don't know what right is. Because if he owes me money, then he, he, wants, he should pay me. If I owe him the money, I'll pay him. If I don't, I don't. I want to do right. There was a time, and we daven for this every day, in Shimon Esri, you might be familiar with these words, Hashiva Shovtenu Kivarishona, return our judges to the way they were of old. We yearn for a time where a Jew can walk into a Beisdin, court of Jewish law, and say, I just want to do the right thing. Tell me what the right thing is. I don't know. We're having a dispute. It's a lot of money involved. I want to do the right thing. If I owe it, I'll pay it. If I don't owe it, I don't want to pay it. And if he owes me, I want him to pay me. But I don't know what the right thing is. And that we should have a system that when the psaq comes down, it's with the authenticity, it's with the representation of this is Torah law. I'm happy. I can walk out happy. And it's true. We have a court system today. If it's in secular law, for sure, because it was made up by other fellow men. And even in the basin today, it's not, it, it, we still daven for the judges to return to us the way they once were. Then the basin is doing the best that they can. And we still walk out, and not everybody's always happy. But our, the, let me just finish it off. But the attitude of, I just, I want to know what's right, and I just want the psak of what. So where does the Sanhedrin sit? Next to it. The Mikdash, right next to the Mizbeach. And it says the Maharal because the purpose is to bring peace to the world. In the same way that the Mizbeach brings peace between man and Hashem, the Sanhedrin brings peace between man and man. Because when you walked out of the Sanhedrin, next to the Mizbeach, in Yerushalayim, whether you won or lost, this, you felt, this is the right thing. This is what's supposed to happen. Did they really? And that brings peace. I, I, whether it did or not, that's where we're up. Let me take something. Is that why when you take someone to a base gym, they both have to agree? I mean, no. I, I, that's what I was told, that if you want to take someone to a base gym, they have to agree. You mean to go to the base gym? They have to agree to the verb. To the verb, yeah. Yeah, otherwise, you know, you, what's the, uh, you know, I can... No, 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 they have to agree to go. Yeah. Yeah, we don't. I don't know that. See, based in today is functioning in. Uh, we're not in Israel. We're not the the source of authority. We're functioning in a different world and a different system. So, you know, when you live, if you're a citizen of the United States, that means by definition you're bound by certain certain laws. 
So if you're going to go to an outside court that's going to you know, adjudicate based on a different set of laws, then the Torah law is not exactly always aligned, even when we have Dina de Dina, we work within it, but it, it's, it's complicated. So you need to have an agreement to do that. Otherwise, if, you're going to, and then you just take them to, you sue them in secular court, and the whole, like, what, what do we do here? So it's, but that's, this, is, this parsha is the, a major discussion of this whole idea of the courts. But this idea, the reason why I love this idea is in the ideal world, Two things, that the attitude of the two litigants is, I just want to do what's right. I don't know what's right. I'm coming to you to tell me what's the right thing to do. And when if I walk out of a basin and like, this is not just a human interpretation of law that you made up, this is a human understanding, because the Sanhedrin has to look through the Tzukim and the Gemaras and to come to the conclusion. This is the human understanding of the divine will. I'm happy. I'm happy. I bring peace. I, I do indeed owe you the money. I don't owe you the money. You owe me the money. And then, that's, can you imagine a world where everybody who walked into court only wanted to do the right thing? And the only thing they're missing is what's the right thing? It's like hard to imagine because we live in a system where even when we walk out of court, we're still not convinced that that's the right thing. That's just, you know, this judge, this lawyer, this, that, the, you know, that's, that's the problem. The guy lied, you know. So, so courts... Don't leave us, unfortunately, with a sense of peace. But it should, if everybody, if this, when, when will, and again, this is what we daven for. Why do we daven for that? Because that's a beautiful world to live in. Life will always happen. There'll always be accidents. There'll always be car accidents. There'll always be dogs and animals that eat my flower bed and children that break glass windows playing baseball. So who owes who? That's always going to happen. But a system in which I feel like this, is, I, I, got the, I got the divine will, is a beautiful system to live in. So that's Rashi's first two comments as to the connection. A, the connection to Harsinai, that all of these laws are indeed divine, and that it's right next to the Psukim of the Mizbech, because that's where we put the Sanhedrin, right next to the Mizbech, because they both are the sources of, uh, of peace. Let me do one more, uh, one more comment to Rashi. Rashi notes as well that the language here is a strange language. I want to tell Moshe, if Hashem is speaking to Moshe, I want you to teach the people the laws. What language should he have used to express? Moshe, here are all the laws. I would have said, I want you to teach it to them. That would be the normal way. The language that Hashem actually uses, here are the laws that you shall place before them. That's an odd choice of language when my goal as Moshe is to teach laws, place them before them. That's just the wrong verbiage. You don't place them before them. You teach them to the people. So Rashi here comments, Rashi here comments that Hashem has, so to speak, said to Moshe, I don't want you to think it's sufficient to teach them two or three times so that they understand it. But I don't have to bother myself. This is what Hashem is saying to Moshe. Don't think, eh, two or three times I'll teach them to make sure they get it. But I don't need to bother myself. That they understand the reasoning, the thinking behind it, and all of its explanations. That's not so important. To that, Hashem says, no, 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 no. It's not enough just to teach them so that they know it. You have to place it before them. Rashi uses the language like a shulchan ha'aroch, like a table that is set, umuchan le'echol lefnei ha'adam, ready for a person to sit and eat. 
You have to place it before them the way that you would place the meal in front of a person. Everything is set on the table and they're ready to go. And what I'll express this again, the imagery there is, you know, when I speak to you, you have to understand. If you could see something, the way that you come down to it, you come to a table and you see that it's all set and the food is all prepared and everything is ready, like, I got it. So there's, a, there's an element of you have to have it so clear before them that it's as if it's been placed before them that they have everything fully understood to the level of the reasoning behind it, its understanding, because you got to get it right. So, so Hashem says to Moshe, place them before it, place them before the people, like a set table in all of its uh, glory, so that everybody understands everything that needs, to be, uh, that needs to be done. All of that were the five words of the opening Pasuk. We didn't get very far, but as I said, there's a lot. We didn't even get to all of it. There's another Rashi still, but uh, I have an, a, a, uh, an appointment I have to run to, so we'll call it. No, we, got a, we got a full session in. Um, today, look forward to Mirz Hashem next week, uh, continuing along, and wishing everybody an awesome day. Is that